So welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant with Jim Thompson. Today we are interviewing rock and roll comic writer, journalist, publisher. You can see his latest work with Yi Soon Shin, Y-I-S-O-O-N-S-H-I-N, graphic novel available on Amazon.com. David Anthony Kraft. David, thanks for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. So, David, the way we like to start is by going back to your very beginnings, where you were born, when you were born, when you first started reading comics. Oh, my God, you're opening a whole topic. Here's the problem I have with that. And you're like, how could you have a problem with that? Well, people always assume where you were born or where you were quote-unquote from somehow defines you. Here's how I put it. You know when an airport is jammed up and the planes are circling waiting permission to land? If there were such a thing as rebirth and stuff, which I'm just using as a metaphor. I was circling waiting to land in the South and I got fucked at the drive-thru as Pesci used to say. I got dropped at the fucking Canadian border. So no, that's not where I'm from. I ran away from the year when I was five. My picture's on the front page of the paper when I was 14, missing in action, trying to get to the South. Uh So it doesn't really define me. (laughs) <laughs> right. And I wasn't asking for definition. I get it. I'm a Southerner myself who left and moved to California using law school as a trick to get there. So I mean, <laughs> Excellent. I had to join the carnival and travel in order to get here. <laughs> but even if you simply say, I'm not from New York City, that gives us something that we don't get with any other interview that we've yeah. had since the beginning. Most of the people are from the well, Northeast. Actually, I feel more... I am not a city kind of guy. Like Conan, I was born on the battlefield in 40 or 50 degree below weather and all that sort of stuff. And I spent my youth trying to get out of there. But if I were a city person, it would be Manhattan. That is the best. Yeah. And that's where you arrived at some point on a motorcycle. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) Here, I'll give you a little behind the scenes. When I was in high school, you know, when you're at a certain age, You don't know your own boundaries. You have no idea what you don't know, which is kind of like everything. But you think you know it all. So I decided to apply for every kind of editorial job there was, including New York, the New Yorker, the magazine. Well, what would a guy from where I was from know about the New Yorker? (laughs) So anyway, I loved the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. Mm -hmm. And his closest competitor was Otis Adelbert Klein. Whom you are a literary agent for the estate. Yeah, since I was like 16. Well, since I didn't know my own boundaries, I talked to Klein's daughter and I asked if he had an agent, you know, because he had died years before, you know, if there was somebody representing his work. Mm -hmm. And she said, no. And I said, well, that's me then. And I said, what do you have to lose? If I don't sell anything, you're exactly the same. And if I do, voila. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I became Klein's agent in high school. What year was that, roughly? Oh, good Lord. 1842, something like that. 1842. That's a while ago. All right. Yeah, you know, a bit ago. Anyway. This is what, the early 70s though, right? No, this was in the 60s. Late 60s, okay. So anyhow, that's how I got to Marvel, because he's kind of been my guiding light or my, you know, whatever. Wow. When DC got the rights to do Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan, and John Carter, and so on, there was a bidding war behind the scenes between Marvel and DC, and DC won. So since I was Klein's agent, Roy Thomas, who was editor-in-chief at the time, contacted me. Mm. because having not gotten Burroughs, they wanted to get Klein. Yeah. So that would have all gone swimmingly, and it was meant to be later on in Creatures on the Loose. They had Gulliver Jones of Mars, which was based on a you know an old book by Arnold. But they tried to get Klein, 
And at the time, there were some hardcover books, and the publisher had a stake in it. You know, it was like if there are any subsidiary rights sold, then he would participate. And Mm -hmm. he was so greedy, he cleared a deal. And I used the chance to go, hey, Roy, can I write for Marvel? And Roy said, sure, but we don't have enough work for our existing writers. But, you know, Mm -hmm. go ahead and submit something. Being practical, I didn't submit anything because I thought, well, if they don't work for the existing writers, they're not going to have work for me. Right. So there's a very long story leading to this. Later on, when I got to the South, I was editing a metaphysical magazine when, and I always, I knew I was going to Marvel. There was no doubt about that. I thought I would have to go there, sort of camp on the doorstep and somehow, you know, get in there. And this is because you were a big Marvel fan early on, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I quit DC Comics when I was seven or eight. Me and my best friend decided they were just totally stupid. And I would not have had a so-called comic career if it weren't for, you know, Stan and Jack, because comics were just too dumb. But when I got into Marvel, Mm -hmm. I was like, this is what I want to do. So Right. So basically Fantastic Four, was that your main issue, were your main comic? No, um, actually, it was, I bought the original Hulk stuff when I was in grade school, before it was Marvel. But when you're that age, you don't follow, it's not like today, where you know that these are all part of some continuity. But later on, I, I saw Jim... Warren Magazines had a publication called Screen Thrills Illustrated. And this is really rare in publishing, especially at that time. But they wrote an article about the Republic movie serial, Captain America. And don't ask me, I wasn't alive in those days, but I always was interested in stuff like that. And they had a picture of Avengers number four, you know, the cover with Cap coming back. Hmm. And that cover, Kirby's art, I mean, I had to have it. So I haunted the newsstand until the book Mm -hmm. came out. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I was always into pretty much the Avengers, you know, Cap and Thor and the Hulk and not as much Spider-Man. I didn't get around to Spider-Man until like issue 19. But, you were a letter writer too, right? You got Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of us were. I mean, if you think about it, everybody who later ended up there. Were you I probably, published much or just that one Hulk issue? A couple here and there. I think they may have both been Hulk. I'm not sure, you know, because I was a big Hulk guy. But anyhow, you know. I didn't bother to submit. And then a few years later, I was editing a metaphysical magazine in Northeast Georgia, which is actually where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I got a letter from Roy. He needed an associate editor, and he thought of me. Which, oh, cool. You, know, you never know when you throw a rock in the pool where the ripples will lead. Mm-hmm. So I kind of owe it to Klein. But, now, was this in 74? Was this when you started doing work for the Marvel Black and White magazines? Yeah. He contacted me in early 74. Well, the thing is, I had, in the meanwhile, of course, I had sold some tech science fiction to Amazing Stories and some comic stories to Skywald. And, you know, with that characteristic not knowing your limitations thing, I had cold called Saul Brodsky at Skywald. With all the confidence of somebody who's, you know, in high school, I was like, I need to write for you. Thanks to him, he agreed. And uh, I did a few stories for, you know, those magazines. Mm-hmm. So, so were those your first published comics, the Skywalk yeah. stuff? Yeah. That mm, was that's before, great. You know, yeah, before Marvel. So And then anyway. and then Atlas, I just want to get the, the trajectory <laughs> right. You did tell us about you going over to Atlas. Okay, well I'm let gonna... me segue neatly into that. Okay. So Roy hired me at Marvel and that was great. I had like about a year at Marvel. Cause yeah, because you contributed to Tales of Zombie Eight. Oh, yeah. It's actually the first magazine. I say this, you know, I was proud then with a sense of irony, and I'm still, you know, feeling that way today. uh But my first 
credit as an editor was on co-editing with Don McGregor on Tales of the Zombie. And it was funny because I used to love reading the New Yorker magazine, you know, which is perceived as, you know, miles away from Tales of the Zombie. But I would read the New Yorker and then I would proudly go to my job as editor of Tales of the Zombie. <laughs> I got a lot of stuff out of New Yorker, including Hellcat's speech pattern, you know, like cheese and crackers. Your sources are where you find them. But I was at Marvel for a year and what happened is, and it's not intentional, but it still happens today. Whatever kind of thing you're writing, you kind of get pigeonholed. So when I got to Marvel, because I had already written horror stuff for Skywald, I was a horror writer. Well, yeah, because you did the giant size Dracula 5, the first John Byrne art yeah. story for Marvel. Yeah, and here's the thing. I was happy to have that and happy to be at Marvel, but I didn't want to write horror. I wanted to write the actual Marvel superheroes, you know? Right. So, and you did anyway. that by force almost with Manwolf, didn't you? Because that was a horror book, and you turned it into a yeah, superhero yeah. book. Well, the thing about Manwolf is they already had Werewolf by Night, which you know is basically kind of a ripoff of Wolfman, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Universal movie mm -hmm. Werewolf. Mm -hmm. Why did they need a third-rate one? And really, what they'd done with him was he ran around, and growled, and menaced people when the moon was out. And it was like I saw no future for me or the book you know mm -hmm. it's like i don't want to write something that stereotypical and i'd written a novel when i was in high school and i went to roy and i said i want to just kind of adapt it you know to a man wolf and make him into a star god and take him into space i thought roy would say no but he was like great one thing really wonderful about roy he did not micromanage if you messed up he or stan would call you on the carpet but i just made it a policy never to mess up so i never mm -hmm. got called on the carpet but, you know, once he said that, I was off and running. How did George Perez get on that book? Me? <laughs> what happened was George Tuska was drawing it. They had some other assignment for him, which kept him busy, and he didn't have time to do that issue of Manwolf. And so we were talking sort of off microphone about how people, you know, help each other out behind the scenes. George had been helping Rich Buckler, ghosting some of his work. Mm -hmm. He had done, I think the only thing in color that had been published was a Deathlock thing that featured, you know, Rich and, and Doug meant, mm -hmm. but he got his shot on the first issue of Manwolf that I wrote. And I liked it so much. It was supposed to just be a fill-in, but I pulled the mom and dad trick on John Romita and, and Roy Thomas. I went mm -hmm. to Roy and I said, because, you know, George had, if you look at those issues, the movement, the action, you know, the excitement, you know, everything that's Marvel was there. And I wanted that. So I went to Roy and I said, can George just be the regular guy on Manwolf? And Roy was like, it's okay with me if it's okay with, you know, John Romita, who was the art director. So I went to John Romita. We used to play softball on Friday afternoons in Central Park. So I went to John Romita and I said, Roy says it's okay if I have George Perez on the book. Do you have any objection? <laughs> and he was like, well, if Roy says it's okay. So that's how I got George on there as a regular guy. And I always that's liked awesome. working with George. You know, we worked together on Logan's Run, and I was packaging the Beatles book for Marvel, and I, I hired him for that. And it was always fun working with him. With George, but, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, since this is about Atlas, right? Yeah. After a year at Marvel, Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, got hired at Atlas as editor. Mm -hmm. And he called me and offered me the job as his associate editor. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I was pretty young. I did not have the experience to know or to think, I wonder if Atlas will last. I was flattered, of course, and also they were doubling my salary that I was getting at Marvel as, on staff as an editor. 
Yeah, it's important. So who can resist that, right? So I went to Atlas as Larry's associate editor, and that's where we did, Rich and I did Demon Hunter, and I thought I had it made. And the thing about Larry is, Larry is a hard worker, and he didn't really delegate much to me. So I went to the publisher, which was Chip Goodman, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, I'm not a clock watcher. I mean, I like to do things, and I just need to do stuff. I can't just, I love the salary, but, you know, give me some damn work. And Chip said, well, we'll divide the line between you and Larry. And I said, no, no, no. I, I, Larry hired me. I'm not going to stab him in the back by having half the line. That's not what I'm talking about. I just want him to delegate some stuff to me. Now, was Rovin gone at this point? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that I overheard said about Rovin, but it's best left off, you know, any any recorded thing. They were pretty unhappy with him at the point that I got there. How was Chip Goodman and Martin Goodman? You met both of them? Yeah. How were the personalities? Have you ever seen the movie The Man with the X-Ray Eyes? The Ray Milan movie. Yeah. Yep. Well, my one and only meeting with Martin Goodman, that's who he was. (laughs) (laughs) He came out of the elevator, and he was very short. And he looked just like a Jack Kirby drawing with the hat and the suit and everything, you know, Mm. from like the early Marvel books or even before the monster stuff. And everywhere he looked, there were X-ray beams that destroyed people and things. He was tremendously angry. I did not, again, put it together. Why? It turns out, I guess Atlas was losing money hand over fist. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So anyway, Chip, on the other hand, it was a great office because he also published Swank Magazine. So there were always these hot girls coming and going, which was cool. I did not know then, but I have heard since then that apparently Chip was gay. I didn't know that. Oh, but, okay. Chip Goodman was gay. I didn't know that either. Okay. Well, I've heard that. I mean, I like I said, I was all about work. I was kind of oblivious to things. But, mm-hmm. you know, there were all these cute girls coming and going and stuff. But it was a small office. It had an open sort of production department that was Alan Kupperberg and Shelley mm-hmm. Lefferman. You know, and Alan Kupperberg designed that stylized Atlas A. And Shelley lettered stuff, including Demon Hunter. But Chip's office was right beside my office, which was Larry's office. We had adjoining desks. And after one particularly hard day, Chip showed up at the door with martinis. And he was like, I heard what you guys went through today. You deserve a drink. I was like, this is the kind of publisher to have. (laughs) Wow. So he was actually a pretty cool guy. Yeah, at least as far as my experience. So anyway, you know, and I mean, we're jumping around because we'll have to come back to Demon Hunter. But oh, we're coming there, back to Demon Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. After <laughs> I was there for a while, I got assignments to write like three books on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. One of them was Demon Hunter. And, you know, there were a couple of others. So Do you remember decided, what the others were? One was one that I had pitched to them, but it never made it. And I think the other one might have been. Oh, was been, that the Beast one? I mean, there was a spinoff from Demon Hunter. Was that the. No, no, it wasn't that. It was. I think it was called Bloodhawk. And then one of the other books, which it'll occur to me in a minute, because if I chase it, you know, it'll keep being elusive. But I basically had three books to write. So I was going to pull a Steve Englehart. At that point, I went freelance and I was going to move to the West Coast because now I had all these books to write. And I just want to jump back to say when I had complained to Chip about not having enough work, at that point, Larry let me start writing the cover copy and some other stuff like that. So I got to have some fun with that. Anyway, oh, cool. so hopped on my motorcycle, and I went to the West Coast, secure in the knowledge that I was the new Steve Englehart. And when I got to the West Coast, Atlas had gone defunct, and I had no work. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story before, that by the time you got there, it was, yeah, the party was yeah, over. You know, yeah, I was on top of the world, and then there was no world. So I spent the summer on the West Coast, and I realized I did not belong among 
mere mortals because at the Marvel bullpen, you know, and at Atlas, because there's a lot of the same people crossing back and forth, you know, you could go out to a movie and then sit around afterwards and, you know, talk about why you liked it, didn't like it, what the technique was, how this worked and, and what they had done there to make that work, my kind of stuff. Out in the regular world, people just go, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Well, that didn't really work for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I called Jim Salakrup, a good friend of mine from the early days, and I said I wanted to come back. And Roger Slifer was too. Roger and I started on the same day at Marvel. They had just fired 13 people. Oh, wow. And what Marvel used to do is we all knew it at the staff level, but for some reason, management didn't seem to know it. What would happen is, you know, there was a big lag between when a book was published and when you got the, when Marvel got the actual sell-through on, on it. Right. Well, obviously the book sold better in the summer and worse in the winter because of accessibility and so on. Well, every summer they would get the winter sales figures and they would fire people. Every right. winter they'd get the summer sales figures and they would hire people. Yeah. Cause and we used to cycle, say, yeah. why don't they just notice this and like average it out or something? Well, anyway, they had just fired like 13 people when I wanted to go back because it was summer. So they'd gotten the winter sales figures. And Roger was like, I don't know if you have much of a chance. They've just been firing people left and right. And Salakrup was like, yeah, but you're Dak. You always do okay. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank God for Salakrup. Anyway, so I went back and things were fine. In fact, the actual, you know, we are really out of chronological order. But the first thing that happened was when I went by the bullpen, I came in the, the front door you know, where the receptionist was. And then you'd come in and there was an office on your right that had Irv Watanabe, the letterer, and various people. Oh, and cool. then when you, turn, when you turned the corner, there was Larry Lieber's office. He was back at Marvel after Atlas and doing mm-hmm. the British books. And I was on my way to him because I knew he would give me work. You know, Britain used to divide one of those short Marvel comics into three parts, believe it or not, for publication in England. And they needed new splash pages. And they would divide them like mechanically, you know, it could be in the middle of a conversation like we're having and it'd be like, okay, to be continued. And then you have to come up with a splash page, <laughs> crazy stuff. But I wrote intermediary splashes for, for like all the Marvel stuff basically. But anyway, that was later. So I came in, I rounded the corner and standing in Larry's doorway was Rich Buckler. So we had like a reunion and we decided then and there that we should do Devil Slayer. And, you know, Rich was working on, well, he didn't even have a plot, but he was working on what became I'm trying to remember what it was published as. It was one book, and then they switched it over. But Marvel Spotlight 3, I think it was. Right. Was this a Deathlock tie-in? Yeah. Okay. It was originally scheduled to go into, like, Astonishing Tales or something. But he didn't have a plot. So when I bumped into him, I was like, hey, dude, how you doing? You know, we should, you know, do this character called Devil Slayer. Because Atlas was defunct. Let me ask you a question on that. Let's go to Devil Slayer. Well, Demon Hunter, Devil Slayer, all of that. Did you consider yourself co-creator of that in the beginning or was it you mentioned that it was his baby is it his baby or well it was his baby except it wasn't <laughs> well that's, that's what i'd like to explore yeah, a little so bit is, yeah. is it character well, co-creation rich was a great guy and i love talking rock with him because he was plugged into all the rock stuff here's an advantage artists have and it's why they should all be bitch slapped they can work and listen to tv or movies or music as a writer, because of the word thing, there's no way to be writing words and listening to other words. You know, they have this unfair advantage. But anyway, Rich was always into music and stuff. And we used to talk about it at Marvel before and stuff, and then at Atlas and then back at Marvel. But <sighs> Rich also, they always say don't speak ill. And I'm not really speaking ill, but I'm just speaking right. reality. 
Right, right. Rich would overcommit, and then he would skate by with like really kind of weak stuff. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji, and I'm Michelle, and this. This is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities. Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States, he was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast.、Mm-hmm. And if you look at that first Devil Hunter, he turned in. I mean, I wish I still had the Xeroxes. There's a point at which there's a yacht, and I rode off of the art. You know, I mean, Marvel fell, and the artist. Who actually finished the work are working off of what was turned in. Well, there's like a, a whole page, and there's a big shot of a yacht. And Rich put a little circle going. Yacht goes here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there wasn't even anything to ink. So when you look at it, it looks kind of unfinished. It's unfinished because they did the best they could with nothing much there. So the inker、um, put the、Rich、yacht was, there. That's funny. Yeah, and Rich was enormously talented, but he spread himself way too thin. So、mm-hmm. what happened was. I was meant to dialogue Demon Hunter, but in the end, I ended up co-creating the damn thing because it was so thinly done. There wasn't anything there. You yeah, know, there'd be pages that were inexplicable, and I would just puzzle over them. I'd be like, "What in the hell is supposed to be going on here?" So you know, I just made stuff up, and you know, voila. So out of necessity, you are the co-creator of the character.、Yes. <laughs> I signed on to dialogue it, and I ended up kind of inventing it with him. You know, he had the original concept and sold it to Chip, but.、Right. Whatever the hell he was thinking was not on the page. That's so, interesting. When you were doing the Marvel UK stuff, were, you were also in '76. You did some DC titles too, right? Like Richard Dragon, Commandy, Swamp Thing. Yeah. Yeah. When I went away and then suddenly discovered I had no work and came back, what happens is it's not strict, but it's, it works like this. You know, you kind of work your way up. You know, so you start at really, really low rates and you start doing like you know horror stories or whatever, and then you know you keep going and. Work comes your way, and eventually, the goal of everybody in those days was to go freelance when you didn't have to work on staff and you had enough writing or art to support yourself. Well, when I went away, I reset to start. You know, so I went from having three books at Atlas to having nothing anywhere. For some reason, Jerry Conway always liked my work, and、go. that was nice. So he was an editor at DC, and he he had just jumped over to DC around that time. Yeah,、then. yeah. And I didn't approach him; he approached me, which you know was great because I've never been that good at selling my stuff. I'm I'm usually better if you give me an impossible assignment, I will rise to it and and awe you and stun you. But、mm-hmm. if you ask me to pitch something, God help me. So Jerry came and said, "You should come over to DC," and I'm like, "Okay." And he offered me a you know a pretty good rate, and that's how I ended up doing that spell at DC. And then can you talk about back- those books a little bit? Yeah. yeah, the Richard Dragon Commandy Swamp thing. How was working on it? Was that pretty easy for you, or did you kind of have to get some background on those characters since they weren't like the Marvel stuff that you had read when you were younger? Well, everything, even the Marvel stuff, I would do that. Like when I did Manwolf and wrote J. Jonah Jameson,、mm-hmm. when Len Wein was editor, he called me in, and he, I had Jonah calling Spider-Man the Wall Crawling Weasel. Len said he would never say that. Well, I'm,、huh. I'm a research guy, so I pulled out the Stan Lee books. With oh yeah, Jonah, 
I'm like, right here, he calls him a wall crawling weasel. <laughs> I try to keep the characters in character, you know, and those days seem like they're gone, but Stan had a voice for every character. And right. you could not, as Steve Gerber used to say, you could take a DC book and, you know, here's Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman, and whatever they're saying is basically plot. It's in service of the plot. They're not like real characters. You could change the tales of the balloons, and it would make no difference. But Marvel mm -hmm. was never like that, which is why I like Marvel. It was all character-driven. Right. So, you know, you could not take a balloon from the thing and put it to Spider-Man. You know, it was impossible. So I always would research the back issues to see the, the speech patterns and, you know, the behaviors, you know, basically try to keep everybody in character. And so I did that also at DC. But, God, there's so many stories. Like on Swamp Thing, I wrote the last issue of the yeah. first series. Issue 24. Yeah. I also wrote 25 and 26, <laughs> but they were not published. Okay. Um, 25 was drawn and 26 was not drawn. It was just scripted. But I always liked Swamp Thing. But if you think about it, and if you look at like the different companies, it wasn't just an implosion. First, there was when the code loosened up and they were like, we can do all these things. We can do mm -hmm. zombies. So suddenly there was all these kinds of monster books. And then the monster thing kind of collapsed. And I mean, it's easier to see in hindsight than it is when you're living in the moment. Pretty much all the monster books got canceled. Man, Wolf, Swamp Thing, you know, all of them, with the exception of Tomb of Dracula, thank God, because that was a good book. That was but a anyway, good book. Yeah, mm -hmm. it really was. But I used to always try to get it to edit in the office. Don and I would fight over the good books. Reporting would bring in, you know, that day's books, like these are in and we need them by four. Hump, hump. And, you know. Oh, and Gerber's man thing. That's the yeah, other good. Man thing was damn great. That was but, I mean, great. I would try to grab all the good stuff, and Dom would try to grab it, but I, I would generally win. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, Don um, McGregor? Yeah. Oh, that's you funny. Know, we had desks side by side, and we were like editing. Under Roy, this is what's weird. There was Roy, Don, and me doing the entire Color Comics Marvel line. I mean, that was mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like today with 4,802 editors. You know, when they would bring those books in. There were books that weren't so exciting, and then there were books that I loved, like Starlin's work, you know, or Tomb of Dracula. And Marv was on staff, but he was doing like the the black and white books, mm -hmm. but he was writing Tomb of Dracula, you know. Mm -hmm. So you know, I always tried to grab the the better stuff, and I liked Doug Mensch's Master of Kung Fu too. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. That was my favorite period of Marvel. I mean, besides obviously the the classic, but that was always for me bigger than when Shooter came on and the other stuff. I, I loved that I era. On that. Shooter's a good guy, but I, I, his influence on Marvel was to turn it into a DC kind of thing. Editors yeah. and assistant Different editors, editors. books and you know, all that kind of stuff. Marvel used to be, and I'm talking about my period, from what Jerry has said and what Roy has said, things were different before my period. But you, it's like when you're born. You're born and the world seems like normal from the time you're born. But you have no knowledge of before that, you know? Well, when I came into Marvel, Roy was so busy writing books and editing, he spent his attention on the big things. Here's a new mm -hmm. character. Here's the top books. Let's make sure the villains don't repeat. Once or twice a year, you'd go in with like a, a book like Manwolf or Kill Raven or Black Panther, and you'd say, you know, I plan to do this. And he'd go, okay. And then really, unless you really fucked up or you, you tried to push boundaries, which Don was always doing, but you were pretty much left alone. And because we were on staff, there wasn't anybody over us. There was no editor of those books. We were the de facto editors of our own books. They would go to press, and Roy and Stan would see them after they were printed. So those were like cool days. But then, Were they a lot looser than, than DC in terms of like oh, that? Oh, there's no comparison. During my period at DC, 
And part of me smiles at this and part of me is like, yeah, yeah, you know, you were just being, you know, stupid. But DC was so regimented and Marvel became this later, but DC had these offices with glass fronts and it was like a menagerie or a zoo. Each one had an editor in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could walk along and look at them and they all had suits and ties and they, and they had no clue about how to do like real comics, in my opinion, of course. Was it so, true that Stan Lee's the one that took you out and bought you a suit? No, but I'll, if you want, I'll tell you that. He gave me a lot of advice, though. I asked him. But anyway, when I was at DC, you know how you react against things? Well, mm-hmm. I was hippie-esque anyway. Like I had hair. I, I think I had three hairs back in those days. <laughs> and and they were long. And it was so non-DC, you know, because everything there was so plot-driven and so anal. I used to make it a point. I spent a summer going around barefoot with my knees hanging on my jeans. Mm-hmm. And it would delight me to go to D.C. because it was so obvious how much they hated me. <laughs> right. Because they were basically suits and you're the, the hippie walking in the room. Yeah. And I, I really did not belong there. I just couldn't help myself. So anyway, when Jerry went back to Marvel, I followed him back to Marvel, you know, where I actually belonged. Because that I was see. my sensibility. There but, you go. Two more D.C. books before you go back to Marvel. Okay, well, um, wait. Let me finish the suit question because it's part okay. of all this. Oh, yeah. What happened was when I went back to Marvel, I was always, you know, when you're yourself, you don't notice these things. Looking back on it, I realized I was a kind of a dichotomy because I was a hippie, but I was also a motorcyclist. You know, instead of being a motorcycle guy or a hippie, I was like a hippie motorcyclist guy. But I always looked like that, too. So I never got, like, hassled on the streets. In those days, Manhattan was a pretty rough place. But I never had any trouble because I looked like the guy that would be causing it. So that was cool. But at a certain point, in regards to the suit question, what happened was I was in meetings with Stan because Steve Gerber had done the Kiss book and then moved to Las Vegas. And he even borrowed 300 bucks from me to do that. In his favor, he actually paid me back. Who does that, right? But anyway, I was left in charge of the rock books. And we had a meeting, Stan and Jim Galton, who was the CEO, and me. I was pitching the Beatles book. And Galton would say, they were sort of like the monkeys, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Really clued in, I got to tell you. So anyway... (laughs) I would say, no, they're a whole thing unto themselves. They, all of rock music from them onward is influenced by them. I would say that, but he wouldn't, Galton would not look at me. He would look at Stan and go, oh, so this and this and this. And then Stan would look to me, and then I would answer. And then, you know, I just didn't exist in that room. So I decided at that point, I was wearing an inappropriate superhero costume. And I decided that I would change overnight into suits and stuff. And Stan really did have an open door policy. I mean, I talked to him about all kinds of things. But mm-hmm. looking back on it, never once about comics. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd go in and go, I want to change. I don't want to tell anybody. But over the weekend, I'm going to totally change. Cut my hair, get a suit, do this, do that. And Stan said, I'm really glad you said that. I would never have told you to do it. But he said, here's the thing. At one point, that hairstyle and that dress meant something. But when you hang on to it, you become an anachronism. He's like, I'm so glad you're going to change. So he gave me like places to go to buy stuff and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, oh, that's cool. And this is in so, 1978 when that happened, right? When you did Marvel yeah, Super Special was, for the Beatles and Marvel yeah, Super Special yeah. 7, the, the Sergeant Peppers. Okay, I yeah. got gotcha. you. He was a great source of, you know, he talked to me about stockbrokers, all kinds of things, just never comics. But probably a good thing, because from what I understand, he was really hands-on. But in my day, he had bigger goals, so he was looking in a different direction. Mm -hmm. The end of that story is, after that, I had meetings with Galton without Stan, because he could actually see me, which was my (laughs) experiment. (laughs) Wow, social experiment. I had a bad effect on the bullpen. 
Maurice Everin loved the way I dressed. She actually followed me around the halls going, this is great. I love this. Well, before that, everybody dressed like, you know, helter skelter. After that, people, including Shooter, who was new, they started wearing suit coats and ties, you know, and Sterno and all the rest of them. You're responsible for that? Yeah, don't blame me, though. But, <laughs> but here's what happened. Because of the response to me, other people saw that and they were like, we should dress up, too. The difference was this. Since I was freelance, I could go home and dress any way I wanted, including come into the office any way I wanted. But because they were on staff, once they started that, they couldn't go back. Not to blame Shooter entirely, because there's some blame attaching to me, but eventually it became DC. You had all these editors with ties and coats in little glass offices. You know, the very thing I hate, which is like at the moment that I bailed and went back to publishing. There you go. Okay. Now I get it. It seemed like at DC, you were kind of closing out, maybe not intentionally, but you were doing the end of the line stuff for various comics. And one of those, they weren't the last two issues, but they almost were on Blackhawk. Was that a weird comic for you to be doing? Well, you know, it wasn't like I was really familiar with Blackhawks, but somewhere in my youth, I had come across some of those early Blackhawks, and I really liked them. The Reed Crandall stuff? Yeah, 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 the good stuff. So, you know, that was cool. But there's a great unpublished Blackhawk story. When um, Jerry was editing that, and he's like, here, do these. We stopped near Times Square at a Dunkin' Donuts, and we were sitting there, and, you know, plotting together, you know, like, what should we do? And Jerry was like, we should kill Blackhawk and we should do this and we should do that. Mm-hmm. And his ideas were really cool. And I thought he was serious. I nearly made a fatal error <laughs> by going, yes, I should go home and do it. <laughs> and then he went, just kidding. We can't do any of that. We have to like stick with the, you know, the way the company does stuff. Jerry was much more creative and there's nothing wrong with his work, but he couldn't bring all of it to his work because he was aware of what was, you know, acceptable and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did what was acceptable, but I would have loved to have done, you know, I mean, he was off and running. Gerber went through a period where he um, hung out a lot with Jerry. He used to say, you know, that guy knows really a lot. You know, he's not like you would think from his work and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he was always conscious of what market and what editor and what company he was working for. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Because I remember reading a Conway novel, science fiction novel, when I was really just a kid. And I thought, this is actually pretty good. He was never one of my favorites in terms of at Marvel or at DC. But I really liked that. And I wondered if he could do more than what he did. Well, you know, he went on to a long TV career, story editing and writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk a little bit about Foom. So that was a fan magazine of Marvel that was started by Jim Steranko in 73. And you edited issues 15 through 22 from 1976 to 1978. So how did you get that gig? And that first issue, 15, was the Steve Gerber, Howard the Duck issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about um, your time at Foom. Well, remember, I was coming back from my big days as Steve Englehart when I arrived on the West Coast with no work. (laughs) And then I returned. It was during that period where I was getting work and trying to reestablish. I always liked Sal Brodsky. I mean, I didn't know him when he bought my stuff at Skywald, but when I met him at Marvel, Sal used to um, intimidate me and a lot of people. When people were messing around, because Marvel was not DC, so people would be like squirting each other with squirt guns or, you know, throwing paper airplanes or doing whatever, you know, dueling on desktops. He would walk by the door to the editorial room and he would just stop and stare. He wouldn't say anything. But that <laughs> stare was like Gorgon. It could turn you to stone. <laughs> and I was usually working, not actually messing around. But nonetheless, I turned to stone too, you know. 
So when I came back after my hiatus, high on acid, I must say. <laughs> hey, the statute of limitations has expired, I think. There you go. I was telling Salakrup how I always found Saul intimidating. And he said, you should just go talk to him. He's a fine, nice guy. So, you know, here's me all hopped up. <laughs> and I, I knock on Saul's door and I go in and, and, you know, I just, and I'm a big one for confronting things. If there's going to be things, let's just confront them. So, you know, I went in and I said, you know, you've always intimidated me and I don't really know why, but, you know, you would stop at the door and stare. And he said, I never once was staring at you. He said, there was no point at which you were not doing your stuff. And he said, you know, it's comics, but we have deadlines. You have to get books out. So it's my job as vice president to make sure people actually sober up and do their shit. And after that, we became swell pals. Um, And I would go to him for advice, you know. Yeah. So anyway. Did you ever I, tell him you were on acid when you were having that conversation? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was on acid for 30 days at that period. <laughs> and yeah, here's why and how. I don't know how to find drugs. I never have. But if they cross my path, you know, and I'm exaggerating for effect, but if Keith Richards said, let's shoot heroin in your eyeballs, they'd be like, well, I'm with Keith Richards and he has heroin. Why not? Yeah. You know, I wouldn't go, I need to shoot heroin in my eyes. But if it happened, I'd probably be there for it. That's the Pac-Man philosophy, right? It's in front of you. <laughs> well, well, I had a, that Norton 750 that I put in the Man Wolf books. And I was, at that point, I was living in Queens. And there was mm-hmm. this guy, George. He wasn't a true humpback, but he was kind of. But he stopped to admire my bike. And we were just mm-hmm. like, you know, chatting. It turned out that he was like, you know, a drug guy. You know, he had stuff. And he's like, you know, I've got acid. And he pulls out this baggie with these tabs. My thinking being very, and you know, this is the dichotomy that is me. I'm thinking practically. I'll probably never see acid again. <laughs> I don't know how to find it. Here's the thing. I thought, there's a the whole bag of it. Why don't I just buy all of it? <laughs> right. Because I'll never see any again. That's hilarious. So, so that's what happened. I was like, well, you know, I'll just take all of it then. And so I took like acid every single day for 30 days till it ran out. And then I never did it again. <laughs> If we go back and read your comics of this period, can we spot, oh, this is during the 30 days of acid? <laughs> no, because here's the weird thing. Fans are always going, and they'll say this about Stan and Ditko and everybody. They'll go like, oh, they must have had good stuff here. Stan and Ditko were the straightest guys on the planet Earth, and they right. were never on anything. Whenever I wrote, I was never on anything. I mean, I only did it like, you know, when I wasn't. Like, when I'm writing, I have to be like 100% or at the worst 99. I have to be really on it. I can't be drunk or stoned or this or that. So no matter how stoned a thing reads, I wasn't. Yeah, you wouldn't spot it. But the influence of it, what it did for me was I made a lot of mental connections like pattern sensing and seeing the world in a different way and stuff Mm. like that. I think Mm -hmm. for me, it was very beneficial. But I never felt the urge to do it again or anything. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't because I had a bad experience. I would say they were all pretty good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've been there, done that, you know, whatever. Yeah, Um, right. It wasn't you didn't have that addictive personality. What I do is, whether it's coffee or alcohol or even food, I take time out. I've taken a year or two off from alcohol or coffee. Just this year, I didn't eat a single bite of food for 28 days. I'm not even addicted to food. Now, when you were doing those foom issues, did you kind of look back at the Steranko issues, or did you say, you know, I'm going to do kind of like my own take on foom? Well, what happened was, because I was looking for work, as soon as I talked to Rich, the next door on the right was Saul. So I went in there looking for work. He was the champion of no budget. I learned a lot from Saul later when I was publishing. You know, I'm like, here's my page rate, a half of a cent. But the budget for Foom, the entire magazine, all the art, all the writing, 
was 750 bucks. Produce a magazine for that, I dare you. <laughs> so my job was, how can I do this and still actually make anything at the end of it? And I had met this legal secretary named Donna Coe, who is credited in FUM. She could transcribe faster <laughs> than you could talk. So what I did was I did the information section where I would talk to each of the different editors and writers, and then I would give it to her to transcribe, and then I would edit it into something resembling English that you could read. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got that done and got it done, you know, with not a lot of money and stuff. I see. And I wrote, and I wrote a lot of it and so on. But mainly, I just had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I got to interact with Kirby a lot. But, you know, this is a whole other topic. People who weren't there and don't know anything about it are absolutely certain they know everything. Mm-hmm. And they haven't dealt with Ditko. They haven't dealt with Kirby or Stan. They really don't have a clue. They have what they think is reality, which, you know, is not even close. I love Kirby's work, and I, I even wrote him a letter about, like, the Captain America Bicentennial, you know, and stuff that I have on my Facebook page. <sighs> the reason why he was such a good collaborator with Stan is Stan was the man of words, and Jack was the man of, of art. Jack wasn't so good with words, which, you know, I think you can tell if you read anything, you know, that he actually wrote. So I was trying to actually publicize his books when he came back to Marvel. You know, okay, there's a book added to the schedule called Devil Dinosaur. So here's me, because I'm trying to boost this in whom I'm like, you know, tell me about it. What's the origin of Devil Dinosaur? And Jack pauses for a while and then he goes, he's red. Yeah, yeah, he's red. <laughs> That's what I had to work with. So, you know, I did the best I could under those circumstances. He's more about action, right? I mean, he's yeah, I mean, expressing you know, he himself these, as a visual thing. That, he's not saying it, tripped, though. Yeah, his ideas tripped over themselves. You know, but somebody like Stan kept him on course. You know, right. he may not have thought so, but if you think about it, here's the Silver Surfer. In the next issue, it'll be something else. It's always something else. Look at that DC stuff. It's one thing after another, and nothing has any continuity to it. Stan would be the guy of, let's not lose the Surfer. Let's bring him back. Let's do this. Let's not jump so fast, you know. So, I mean, there was a reason why their collaboration worked well. You know, I mean, Stan may not have been the best with ideas, but he knew his stuff. I mean, Stan was a sharp guy, mm-hmm. but... Kirby was like brilliant and him and Stan together, you know, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, Kirby was like, you know, he used to sharpen my pencil. Why do I have to listen to him? Really? That was their best work. You know, that's interesting. So Kirby's brilliant Stan's very sharp wit about it. And together that makes for a really powerful thing. And, yeah. and that, that makes sense to me. Because if you let Kirby write it, he could have a good idea and not even know it and just throw the baby out with the bathwater onto the next idea. It's like, hold on a minute, take some readers along, you know, build some stuff up. I think why he always thought he was the writer is because he was kind of the plotter right. and he thought that was writing. And I don't mm-hmm. think he ever could comprehend that his writing and Stan's writing were worlds apart. Stan brought this whole, like two or three other levels you know, to it. And Jack would just be like, it's a giant rat. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, your art is great and your writing, not so much. Now, when you were doing Defenders, you know, I want to ask a couple questions about Defenders and Jim has some questions too. You really showed a knack for writing personalities into your characters. One of the more celebrated parts was the 1977 Scorpio Saga story arc. You really gave each character their voice. Was that like, you know, you kind of saw that in Stan's writing and you felt like you wanted to do something similar? Or did you actually feel like you were channeling the characters or expressing different parts of yourself? How did that kind of work out with Defenders? I would say it was the latter part. Keith was fun to work with, and Keith is a man of ideas. Over the years, I've collaborated with all kinds of people. Here's my favorite. I come up with something that I think is cool, and I give it to them, and they think 
that's cool, but watch this. And they up mm-hmm. right back to you to write. And you're like, holy shit. So then you have to up that. Mm-hmm. That's the best kind of creation. Right. And you're talking about Keith Geffen, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Keith and, and various other artists that were like that, you know, like mm-hmm. George or Ed Hannigan. And then there's people like Carmine Infantino. You give them something and they, they give you back one tenth of what you gave them in your plot because mm-hmm. they're lazy and they want the money. And there, I've said it, and I'm sure there will be people pissed off about it, but that's a fact. So mm-hmm. what you don't see in the Defenders written, the ones that were drawn by Carmine, is nine tenths of my plot. <laughs> so mm. at the, I'm looking at the Hulk punching this monster which apparently has hands because in one panel he has hands, but for the rest of the book, he does nothing. The Hulk just punches him. And the Hulk is in the classic Superman, I'm going to fly off, you know, one knee up pose. He doesn't mm-hmm. even flop the image. So I'm looking at it and going, well, the entire story is missing. I better pull a theme out of my ass in a hurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So those are the collaborators I don't like working with because uh, I see. lazy hacks. And you're talking about Carmine after I'm he left about DC Carmine Comics. When he did those Defenders. Jesus yeah, Christ. from the late 70s. I got you. Okay, yeah. cool. It's funny because as fate had it, he was publisher of DC when I was doing my stint there. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy. Here's why it was good that the monster, there's a couple reasons that the monster crash was good for me personally. We were in an elevator, Jerry and Carmine and I at DC. And Carmine turned to us and said, from now on, I want Hawkman and Swamp Thing in the same book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, I thought he meant like the Marvel stuff, you know, when Tales to Astonish and stuff, where, where they had two like 10-page stories or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, in the same story, every issue, from now on. I'm thinking, Swamp Thing and Hawkman have like zero in common, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell, right? So the unpublished Swamp Thing, which was 25, was, you know... It, a battle between Hawkman and Swamp Thing. After that, if the book had lasted, and I didn't know when he said that, that it wouldn't. You know, I was racking my brain. I'm like, what the hell can I do? And I thought, well, I guess I'll take Swamp Thing to Thanagar or something. I mean, what, you know, but I mean, when the publisher talks, you you listen. So Mm -hmm. he had been the boss over there, and thank God they canceled Swamp Thing before that, and Manwolf, because when I left Marvel to go to Atlas, I had not finished the Manwolf saga, you know, the, the Star God thing. And, and to me, it was a setup. I saw him as a real Marvel character that had legs, but I hadn't finished it. And when Shooter came to Marvel, they offered him Manwolf because I had left. And we had lunch when I was at Atlas. I explained to him basically what's on that text page, you know, that says, here's what was in store for Manwolf, you know, right? where I tried to at least give the readers a kind of a closure. But Jim's eyes just glazed over like he's didn't really get it. So fortunately for me, they canceled the book. And then when I got back to Marvel, I was able to actually do the end of that particular, you know, sequence. You uh, know, those which, two Marvel premiere issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I mean, in both this case of Swamp Thing, which I think would have been horrible if Swamp Thing and Hawkman had to be together in the same story every issue. You know, it's like, whew, you know, I got off of that one. But the cancellation happened at the right time, you know, for me. But you know, that's, that's so funny that Alan Moore actually takes him to Thanagar. Yeah, and you know, here's what's also funny. I haven't read those. <laughs> I hear they're good, but I, I, you know, I've got like the online thing, but I just never seem to have time. I want to go and see what he did with it. Mm-hmm. They're very good. Also, some concepts that you introduced into the Defenders: Cold War, nuclear power, sibling rivalry, temptation, and interesting, growing old alone. These are just really interesting anxieties that I think a lot of people had at the time. Was that conscious? Were you putting some of your own anxieties into the book? Uh, Tell us about that. Well, I'll jump back to Scorpio because I didn't get to say 
I had the Scorpio concept. I knew how it was going to start and end with the bookends, you know, with uh-huh. suicide. But the battle, I left to Keith. And Keith yes. did some great stuff, you know, in the battle. And I tried, when I was writing it, I tried to, you know, you can't have everything that's just all dark all the time. I mean, contrary to how comics have been for a while. But mm-hmm. I tried to lighten the stuff with some of the banter when the fight was going on, you know, with, with Zodiac. Well, Keith was beginning too. And if you look back at those Scorpio issues, and then say, compare them to later on, like Day of the Defenders, by, you know, when Sal was doing the art. Sal put all those characters, I don't know how many there are, like 30 maybe. And he managed mm-hmm. to put them all in. Unlike Carmine, who was cheating the whole way, he managed to put everything in my plot into the story and still leave room for dialogue. I mean, oh, cool. he, he was remarkable as a storyteller. If you look at Keith's stuff, and I loved working with Keith, but if you look back, he was so new. He didn't know to leave room at the, like when you change the scene, yeah. leave some room in the upper left so you can actually establish that you've changed scenes. For a caption and, box, yeah. Yeah, and when you're fighting, there has to be some dialogue someplace. You can't fill the whole panel. So mm-hmm. that was challenging to write because I'd be like, I can put one balloon under an arm here, and I can put a double dash on each side of one word, and I can put that over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I would rather go through that with somebody who's creative than do some boring stuff, you know? Right. But the Scorpio thing was probably my lowest point ever. I was massively depressed. And, you know, I think that in art, I mean, who wants to be depressed all the time? You know, people are like, McCartney's too happy. Well, mm-hmm. you know, what should he do? Suffer for his art? I mean, but anyway, I think that particular story was because, you know, that's where I was at oh. at the time. And some of the others were like, you know, I was very upbeat at the time, you know, or, or mm-hmm. whatever. But mm-hmm. mainly, it was the deadline, always the deadline. Mm. You know, what you would do, and I think, for me, it's a great way to work. And I understand all the side of people and how comics has become, which is, oh, you need to have your arc planned in advance, blah, blah, blah. God help us. There would have never been Howard the Duck. There would have never been anything I did, because... I had no fucking idea what I was doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. On Scorpio, I did. I knew what his story was over three issues. But by and large, you had like 8.2 seconds to come up with a plot and three more seconds to actually script the pages. And, you know, you need to bring readers back. So you had cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. But Gerber was good at the cliffhangers and terrible at recovering, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which is why all of us at various times we got to dinner with him. Because he'd be like back against the wall. I've got to have a plot tomorrow, and I have no idea. What I'm, you know, I did this, and we would go out and like you know kick ideas around and stuff. I mean, it, it was fun times, but it was also right. the deadline. So a lot of what you were asking me about the stories was, well, you need something tomorrow, and it's like, oh shit. <laughs> and so you're putting in what you're kind of thinking at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the best thing you can come up with. And to me, the miracle is now if I could go back, I would take Defenders was pretty much the way I would do it. But on She-Hulk, I would cut about half of the dialogue, you know, but you're doing the best that you can Mm -hmm. in the limited time you have. And we were all beginners, if you think about it. I mean, not all of us. I mean, certainly Sal wasn't and so on. But the rest of us, you know, we're we're learning in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. It's like, go on stage, act, and you better be good. All the things that made Marvel great at that time are also the things that made a lot of those books not so great. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, somebody came up with something lame, you know, or this or that. But... I like that method, the anarchy, much more than the structured thing. Well, this has been a really fun insight into the mind of David Anthony Kraft. Join us in two weeks for the second half of the David Anthony Kraft interview here at the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Cheers. Cheers.